Happy Easter. Who's excited? We're here to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can we give Jesus a round of applause real quick? How, how awesome is the work that he has done, amen? That is what Easter is all about. It is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is about celebrating the victory that Jesus accomplished when he conquered sin and death. They no longer had dominion. And for us as believers, when we set our faith on Jesus Christ, sin and death no longer has dominion over us. That is why we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a powerful time. It's a time to celebrate. I want to quickly uh, go over this scripture before we get started that really explains why the resurrection is the most vital part of our faith and why it's, you know, Super Bowl Sunday for Christians. It's the big event. There are more people attending church today than any other day. The resurrection is the most important thing. And so let's read this scripture. This is Paul telling us why this is so vital to our faith. 1 Corinthians 15.12 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. You see the importance of the resurrection? Paul says it is really the hinge by, what, by which our entire faith swings open. Because if there is not hope in the afterlife, if the dead cannot be raised, if Jesus truly just died and he didn't raise, then we have no hope for anything to come. It is through the resurrection that there is dominion over sin and death. There is victory over sin and death. This is the most important part of our faith. Jesus took our sins to the cross. He bore my transgressions, your transgressions. But if he just died, you'd be forgiven, but you'd have no afterlife. You would have no resurrection. He had to also conquer sin and death in the grave and rise on the third day so that we could have victory. Amen? So that's why we celebrate it. Now today... We are going to be going into the book of Esther, which is the series that we're currently in. And we're doing that because the passage fits really well with Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to be looking at some things that happen in Esther and really showing the similarities to the work that Christ did for us when he rose from the dead. But like I said, it's all about victory. How many of you like to win? Anybody? Is anybody in here who's like, yeah, I like to lose. I'm not a sore loser. I'm a happy loser. Like, I just love losing. No, I doubt that any of you are like, I just love losing. Uh, that's not really a thing, right? <laughs> like, uh, nobody enjoys losing. Everybody likes to win. And people that like to win a little too much are probably, you know, sore losers. Uh, 
I would say that, you know, when I was a kid and like a teenager, I was a pretty sore loser. Oftentimes when I'd play board games, if I was losing, what would I do? I'd flip the board or quit or, <laughs> you know. Uh, fortunately, through the process of sanctification in my life, the Lord has helped me in that area. <laughs> I don't flip Monopoly boards anymore. If I did, uh, you'd, y'all would judge me for sure. <laughs> question my qualifications as a pastor. (laughs) Uh, No, but we like to win. Nobody likes to lose. Victory is a good thing. When your sports team wins, you know, if it's uh, the Super Bowl or playoffs are just now starting, if it's your team that's winning, you get riled up and you get excited. But if your team loses, you leave the game a little different, don't you? you? You leave the game a little disappointed. Well, we as humans were created for victory. Do you know that? We were created for victory, but sin robs us of that victory. Satan hates us, and Satan's entire goal is to get you to fail, to bring failure into your life. And Christ comes, and what he offers all of us is victory, the victory that we were created for. That's why we want to win, because there's something in us that knows that we were created for victory. And sin destroys that. Sin comes to seek, kill, and destroy. You know, he, he comes to take you down, but Jesus has brought a way. He has made a way for all of us to have victory. And so if you want to win, let me tell you, there is, there is no victory like the victory that we have in Christ. Right? It's a lot better than winning at Monopoly. It's a lot better than winning the Super Bowl. It's a lot better than winning the NBA playoffs. And we celebrate those things, don't we? Those little tiny wins, we celebrate them, right? Like if you can catch the green light, you celebrate. Like that's a victory, yes! We celebrate these tiny little things. And so I would hope that when it comes to the greatest thing of all, dominion over sin and death, victory over sin and death that Jesus brought, I hope that today we can celebrate. And that's what Easter is is all about for us, is to celebrate the victory that Christ brought. So we're going to be going into Esther chapter 3 today. Let me just forewarn you, we're going to be covering a lot of scripture today. So try to pay attention, try to read along with the um, screen here or in your Bibles that are near you. Um, But we're going to be going over a lot of scripture. But let me tell you, that's okay, because here at Austin Chapel, we really like the Bible. We really like the Bible. And anytime I don't preach a message without the Bible, that would be a bad thing, right? So we always go to the scriptures because we believe it is God's holy inspired word. And so we're going to take a lot of different passages today and we're going to go over them. And we're going to see just how powerful the victory of the resurrection is. But let's start in Esther today. Before we jump into chapter 3, let me just recap you if you're, if you're new, if you haven't been to any of our previous weeks where we've been in the series of Esther. What has happened is the Jews were exiled because of their sins. So they were once their own nation, and then because of their continual sin and lack of repentance, God sends the Babylonians to take them into exile. And that was for a period of 70 years. And then God used the Persians who defeated the Babylonians to set the Jews free so that they could go back to their homeland, they could rebuild the temple and the wall, And so this is right about the time where we are, after the Jews have been set free, there are some who have returned to go rebuild the temple, and there are some who have stayed in in the places that they were in, in Persia or the capital is where we're at for this text. 
Now, Esther was um, this orphan girl who had been taken under the, um, really had been adopted by her cousin uncle. It's a kind of a weird relationship, a really old cousin, it seems to be. And so, uh, she's adopted by him. That's this guy Mordecai we're going to see a couple times here. And the king of Persia had basically decided to divorce his wife because of some disobedience. And he's looking for a new main queen, his trophy wife, to wear the crown and and stand beside him. He's looking to replace her. And so he replaces um, his queen Vashti with Esther. And then we come to this place where Esther is now queen in chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2, we talked briefly last week, Mordecai is in the the courtyard and he overhears these two guys plotting against the king. So he reports it to Esther. Esther tells the king. They find out that these guys really were trying to kill the king. And so they're put to death. And Mordecai is written in the king's records as to be a man who is honored and to uh, really they're thankful for what Mordecai did. So Mordecai has some respect in the king's eyes at this point. And we're going to see that that is important here in this passage. Now, we're going to go through chapter 3 and chapter 4 here quickly. And we're going to see there's this evil guy named Haman who really hates the Jews. And God is going to use Esther to save his people. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, After these things, King Asherah promoted Haman the Agagite. I didn't stutter. That's... (laughs) <laughs> the type of, he was a, of the Agagites. It's fun to say, isn't it? Everybody say Agagites. Agagites. You, you look at it and you want to say Agites, but it's Agagites. It's just an awesome name for them. So, the son of Hamadatha, that's another good one. If anybody's, you know, pregnant, you want to name your child something, Hamadatha or Agagite. <laughs> or really, the Agagites were the um, descendants of Agag, which is another, you know, you just name your child Agag, uh, and advanced him. So there's this guy, Haman, who is a descendant of the Agagites, and he is advanced, and he's set, um, set his throne above all the officials who were with him. So he's promoted by the king to this very high place. He gets this special role in the kingdom. It's important to know he is an Agagite, okay? Uh, the Agagites... I'm just going to say it as many times as I can in the sermon because it's fun. Were dis- they were an offshoot of the Amalekites. The Amalekites had been attacking Israel ever since they left Egypt. They hated the Jews, and they were continually fighting against the Jews. And the Agagites were descendants of Agag, who was one of their kings and who was supposed to be killed by King Saul, but King Saul decided not to kill him. And so their descendants um, continued to grow, and they became the Agagites. And we see all the way the time later now, there is Haman, who is an Agagite, and all of his generations before him have hated the Jews um, with an intense hatred, which we'll see is very important here in a moment. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. 
Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ashuerus. Okay, so Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman. Now, as we talked about last week, I don't believe that Mordecai is this devout Jew who's, who's doing this for some extremely honorable reason. Um, we see in other places in Scripture where um, they were asked to worship and to bow down, and they, they would refuse, like you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow to the idol of Nebuchadnezzar, and so they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And, and I've read some comparisons that Mordecai is, is doing something similar, but I don't quite believe that he is doing that, because as we've already discussed, he's not some devout Jew. He's, he's not this strong religious person. He had told Esther, don't tell anyone who you are. Don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. Keep it a secret. So we've already shown that he isn't all that into being a strong representative of the Jewish faith. He's already shown that he had, there's some shame there, some cultural shame. But the reason he's not bowing here, I believe, is because Haman is an Agagite. Now, they're not asking him to worship Haman. This is just like if you went to England and there's the Queen of England and you would just kind of bow. It's a polite, respectful thing to do. This isn't asking him to worship Haman. This is asking him to pay respect to the role that he has been given in the king's um, country. (laughs) Today I'm just falling short on words here. But So he is not refusing to worship. He is refusing to show respect to Haman. And I believe it's because Haman is an Agagite. And the Jews don't like the Agagites. And Haman doesn't like the Jews because he's an Agagite. And so, we see here, Haman has a very strong response, doesn't he? Instead of laying hands just on Mordecai, right? He's the one who's not paying respect. Haman should punish Mordecai or kill Mordecai. He probably had the authority to do so. But instead, he goes, no, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to kill all of the Jews. To wipe them off the face of the earth. It's a pretty extreme response to someone not showing you respect. right? Instead of just taking it out on the one, he wants to eliminate an entire people group. It's intense. And so he starts to plot. Verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ashurus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. What? <laughs> Let's kill all the Jews! Get some dice. What are they doing? Well, the Persians were really into mysticism, and, and they were very superstitious, and so they would take dice and they would roll dice for every day of the year. 
And so it's not, they weren't rolling dice for a whole year. They were in one session rolling dice 365 times for every day of the year. And their dice, through their method, basically, through, through the way they were casting lots, they would find the luckiest day of the year for what they were intending to do. All right? And so by rolling the dice or casting uh, their lots, they would find what seemed to them, according to their superstitious beliefs, to be the luckiest day to try to carry out their plan. And so he does this. And then Haman said in verse 8 to King Ashurus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. So he comes before the king, and he basically is bringing an argument to try to get his way. Haman comes and he says, hey, they don't, they don't participate in the laws. They don't follow your laws. They do their own thing. Is that true? No. The Jews were actually being shown a lot of favor by the Persian government. They were actually liked by them. And so Haman is lying. He's using Mordecai's one example to show that all these people aren't going to pay respect to your kingship, to your kingdom. And then he probably says, hey, look, I've already cast lots, and we found the luckiest day as well. And not only that, when we kill them all, I'm estimating that we'll have around 10,000 talents of silver in, in treasure we can take from them. And I'll deposit it to you. So you get rid of these disobedient, disrespectful people. The lots show that it's going to be a good thing, and you're going to get a ton of money from it. So these are, these are his three arguments that he brings before the king. And the king says, all right, that sounds good. Sounds good. They're disrespectful. They're in the way. We can get some money out of it. You know, let's do it. Let's go for it. Then Haman's, uh, sorry, verse 12. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman had commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors of all the providence and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ashwares and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent to couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So they issue this decree that on a certain day, the lucky day, all Jews are to be annihilated. Women, children, young and old, they are all to be wiped off the face of the earth. We want them dead. 
everybody is going to attack them on this day. We're going to collect their treasure and we're going to give it to the king. And it says that the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Rightfully so. People are like, wait, what is going on? What is going on here? Think about it. All of a sudden it's announced that these people who've been shown a lot of favor in recent time, they're rebuilding their temple, they're rebuilding their city, they're rebuilding their walls. Persia has shown them all this favor, and all of a sudden, with a flip of the switch, they're all to be annihilated. See, Haman is a lot like Satan, and he just wants to destroy. He just wants to destroy you. Especially if you're a child of God, if you believe in Jesus Christ, Satan wants to destroy you. Ever since the beginning, he has been wanting to wipe us off the face of the earth, to bring sin and destruction and death. So what happens? Verse 1 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among all the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's units who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on her people, on behalf of her people. And Athak went to and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court will be called, um, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out his gold scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. Okay, there's a lot happening here. Mordecai hears the news of Haman's evil plot to wipe out the Jews across their entire kingdom on this one specific day. He hears this news, and he he puts on sackcloth and ashes, torn clothes and ashes, and he comes to the court, which he's breaking the law. You're not allowed to wear sackcloth in the king's court. And he's, he's basically showing a public demonstration of his disagreement with this. And his mourning over it. And Esther is concerned for him. So she's like, hey, put on some regular clothes so you don't get killed. But he's like, I refuse. You don't understand what's going on. And so through the conversation, she finds out what's going on. And Mordecai's request to her is to go and speak to the king on behalf of her people and try to save them. 
The problem is, for a Persian king, no one was allowed to come into your court unless you were asked or approved to come in. If you came into the court without being asked or without being approved, you would be killed. So Esther is saying, well, you're asking me to go do something. I have not been, I have not been requested to come. So this even goes for his main wife. He's got many wives, but this is his main wife, his trophy wife, the one that literally wears the crown. She can't even come into the court without his permission, without his request. And if she did, she would be put to death. It's pretty intense, right? Don't come in my man cave, woman. <laughs> uh, it's an intense thing. So she's like, hey, I haven't been asked to come. I, I, I can't do that. Verse 12, and Mordecai responds, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He's like, well, I know you're worried about being killed and you can go in the court, but we're all going to be killed anyways if you don't. And he's like, but then he also has a statement of faith. He says, but I also believe if you don't, God will bring some sort of deliverance from somewhere else. But who knows if you haven't been put there for this very reason. The theme of the book of Esther is that of providence. And that's that God takes care of his people in all circumstances and in all places. Even in the craziest situations, like some evil guy trying to annihilate the Jews, God is showing that he will take care of them in all circumstances and in all places. Verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So we'll stop there for today, but what she decides to do is to fast and to get all the Jews in the city to fast with them. And they're doing this because she is going to go and she's going to go to the king and she's going to do what she can to save God's people. And when when we go through this in future weeks, the rest of this book, we're going to see all these opposing plots. But in the end, it's through Esther that salvation comes from the Jews and Haman is hung on the gallows. You see, it is very similar to Resurrection Sunday. It's very similar to what we celebrate today. Satan had it out for us. He had a plan to destroy us all through sin. And it seemed to be working, right? Sin is a powerful thing. We've all experienced the, the, the difficulties of sin in our lives, haven't we? We've all experienced the pain of sin, whether it's sin that we commit or the sin that people commit against us. Sin just brings death, destruction, and, and, and pain and suffering, doesn't it? We know that to be true. But Jesus stepped in at the right time and place, just like God put Esther in the right time and place, and said, nope, I'm going to defeat sin and death on the cross. I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to say, no, there is victory now for those who will believe. 
God puts a person in the right time in the right place to save us all. It's a pretty cool representation here in Esther of what Jesus would ultimately do and that save his people. You know, Satan has always been a hater. And because of Adam, we are all now in a fallen state. But it's through Jesus Christ and Him alone that there is victory, that there is redemption, that there is a resurrection where we can be free from sin and death for all of eternity. Amen? There's a powerful passage in Romans 5 that tells us the work that Christ was doing. In Romans 5.12 it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, whose type was of the one who was to come. Because Adam sinned, we have all been cursed by sin, and we all make sinful choices. We are all cursed because of that sin of Adam, but we are all also cursed because of our decisions. There's sin in our life. There's pain and suffering in our life because of decisions that we have made. We bring sin into our life repeatedly, over and over again. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Oh man, free gift. Isn't that good news right there? It's a free gift. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There was a free gift that was brought through one man. Righteousness extended to all through one man's work. And it's a free gift. It's not your works that that solve your problem. It's not your works that get you past sin. It's the work of one man, the righteousness of one man. And his righteousness is extended to you. So that you can be free from sin and death. Verse 18, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came into increase, uh, came into increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ. Jesus, our Lord. 
Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace is more powerful than any sin. If there's more sin, there's more grace. There's an unlimited amount because Jesus offers it freely. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. Jesus says there is enough grace for you. There is enough grace for me. Believers, do you believe that? Church, do you believe that there is enough grace for you? That through the resurrection of Jesus Christ... There is freedom. There's victory. We don't have to live in defeat anymore. Man, it's powerful. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most amazing thing. There is power in it. The work that he has done. Let's continue reading into Romans 6 now. He gives us some application. What do we do then? If this is all true, then what do we do? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Is that a good question? Right? Are we to continue sinning because there's enough grace? Grace will abound, so let's just just sin. Right? There's enough. (laughs) He says, by no means. There's a healthy tension right there. There is an unlimited amount of grace. But that doesn't mean you should keep on sinning. He actually says the opposite. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's saying that your sins were nailed to that cross. He's saying that your sins, Jesus took them. He bore them. And he took them to the grave. That's what the baptism represents, that our sin went to the grave with Jesus and we rise with him in newness of life. He took our sin to the grave. So let's not live in it anymore. Live in it anymore. He has freed us from it. So, yes, there is grace. If you're in sin right now, no, there is grace. But grace isn't just about forgiveness. It's about the victory He can give you as well today. Grace isn't just, I forgive you for your sin. It's like, I forgive you for your sin. Here's a way out of it. Here's a way to live a whole new life. To live in newness of life. How good of news is that? Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Oh man, that's, that's hope right there. If we've been united with him in death, we're going to be united with him in the resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would, no, no, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. Everybody say, Amen. 
For death he died, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's powerful. He's saying that our old body, our our, our transgressions, they were taken to the cross with Jesus, taken to the grave. And what rose was newness of life. There's grace for us to experience that right now. So instead of keep, uh, instead of to keep on sinning, he says, "By no means. Instead, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus." Amen. Let's read here, verse twelve. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. The resurrection gives us hope for the afterlife. It gives us hope that we know that For all of eternity, we will be with God in perfect unity and in perfect relationship. And that one day, He's returning to bring us all to that place. But the resurrection also gives us hope for today and tomorrow. It gives us hope for right now. Ultimately, sin and death has been defeated in the cross and the resurrection. But practically, it's also been defeated right here and right now. If you choose to walk in that truth. He says you can let sin reign in your mortal body. And you can start obeying its passions again. Or, you can choose to present your members, your your body, to righteousness and to God. You can choose to... Live a different type of life because of the power of resurrection. You could not make that decision before grace was in your life. When you were dead in your sin, you were dead in your sin. There was no freedom. You were a slave. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings freedom right here, right now in your life. The Holy Spirit is with you. He gives us His helper. His grace is with us. So we choose to walk in it. We choose to worship Him and and to refuse sin instead of being slaves to it. And then when we do that, this statement will be true of us. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law but under grace. Do you want that to be true of your life? That sin has no dominion over you? Now, I know that sin can feel like it has dominion over you, doesn't it? Right? Sometimes you feel like you have to obey its passions, but you don't. Satan is a liar. He is a deceiver. There are lies all around you throughout this whole world. And what those lies do is they try to twist things. 
They try to make sin seem not so bad. Alright? They make, maybe make it seem like you deserve to sin. It's been a long week. I get to go do that. There's always like a sneaky way in between the temptation in between our evil flesh, our evil heart, our evil desires to say, well, uh, this might be okay this one time. Uh, No one will know about it. He's a deceiver. And we fall into that game. But Jesus wants something so much better for your life. He wants us to live in grace. To walk in grace. And that's exactly what we need to do, church. Let Resurrection Sunday this year not just be a time where we go, Oh, thank you, Jesus, for you know, forgiving us and raising from the dead. Let's go catch some bunnies and find some eggs. <laughs> Let it be a time where we say, No, today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose to walk in victory. I'm going to choose to refuse to let sin have any more dominion in my life, any, any more power in my life. Today, I'm going to walk in the power of the resurrection. Today, I'm going to walk in grace. I'm going to present my body to God as a living sacrifice. Church, you don't have to walk in defeat anymore. We don't have to. We can walk in victory. Amen? Do you believe that, church? Amen? Amen. Worship team, why don't you come on up? I want you guys to all stand with me. Jesus has done the work. It's done. Victory has already been accomplished. The battle is won. We get to just celebrate the victory. The game's over for us as believers. We are justified. The Bible says that we are already, in a spiritual sense, in heaven, we are already justified and we're on thrones up in heaven. That's our spiritual state right now. So let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate what Jesus has done. So I want you guys to, with me, just give Jesus a round of applause for the victory he has won. Amen? Come on. Say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for all you have done. Worship team.